if your life has gotten to the point where you are extremely dysfunctional, um, you know, I've worked with clients and I'm sure you can relate to this, Meredith, that have lost their jobs. They've really um, developed very serious physical symptoms and diseases and their whole life is consumed by the narcissistic individual. So, you know, I, I struggled with that too. At one point I thought, isn't this just a little bit overboard? You know, is it really necessary? And ultimately I had to make that decision because it was a matter of survival. Not only emotional survival, but also physical survival, because I have worked with people who unfortunately had developed cancer. Um, I've worked with academics who could no longer read a paragraph out of a book because of the brain damage they sustained from the long-term abuse. I'm Meredith Miller, and this is the Inner Integration Podcast, where you can learn the mindsets and tools to help you heal after narcissistic abuse. The first half of this episode is an interview with Kim Saeed, author of How to Do No Contact Like a Boss. In the second half of this episode, you'll find the best clips from my YouTube videos on what to do if you break no contact, some ways that you might be fooling yourself into thinking that you are no contact, but you're really not, how no contact works when you have kids, and how to free yourself from the desire to connect with your ex-narcissist or other manipulator. Quitting a narcissist can be one of the hardest things you've ever done in life. I've heard alcoholics say that it was easier to quit drinking, and I've even heard one client tell me that quitting heroin was easier than going no contact with their narcissist. Today, I have a guest who wrote an awesome book on the topic of no contact. It's called How to Do No Contact Like a Boss, and it is a must-read if you're considering leaving a narcissist or another manipulative character, or if you've already left and you're struggling with putting no contact into place. And for those of you who are parents, be sure to keep tuning in because you're going to hear some wonderful advice from a parent. We have Kim Saeed with us. Welcome, Kim. Oh, thank you, Meredith. Thank you for inviting me on your show. I really admire the work you're doing in the world, and I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you so much for being here. So I would love if you could just start with a basic definition of what is no contact. I'm glad you asked that because um, there is a lot of confusion I see out there um, in the groups and on the forums. No contact is basically blocking a manipulative person out of your life. It seals them out of your life so that they can't keep exposing you to their toxicity. And um, I've seen people kind of use no response and gray rock interchangeably with no contact, but no contact has a very specific requirement so that you can finally heal and move forward. Um, so no contact in its true form means that the narcissist cannot get in touch with you. And if they continue to try, then you have to be ready and willing to take the proper steps. In my own case, for example, I ended up having to get a restraining order. I've also uh, had to change my cell phone number a few times, even though I use it for work. And even though I use it at very important places like my doctor's office and things like that. 
So that's incredible when it gets to the point where you have to make that decision to get an actual restraining order or protection order. And I think a lot of people struggle too with, is that necessary in their situation? Do you have any advice around that in terms of if somebody is trying to figure out if they should go ahead and get the, the protection order or not? I do. If your life has gotten to the point where you are extremely dysfunctional, um, you know, I've worked with clients and I'm sure you can relate to this, Meredith, that have lost their jobs. They've really um, developed very serious physical symptoms and diseases and their whole life is consumed by the narcissistic individual. So, you know, I, I struggled with that too. At one point I thought, isn't this just a little bit overboard? You know, is it really necessary? And ultimately I had to make that decision because it was a matter of survival, not only emotional survival, but also physical survival, because I have worked with people who unfortunately had developed cancer. Um, I've worked with academics who could no longer read a paragraph out of a book because of the brain damage they sustained from the long-term abuse. So really, when you're thinking about filing a restraining order, you've got to look at it as a matter of survival, and especially if you have children. How does that work if you have children in a restraining order? Like, How do you exchange the kids in that case? In my case, for a while, we had to meet in front of the local police department. So yeah, it's not really a lot of fun, um, but but there are things you can do. You know, like I said, I met my ex in front of the local police department, but you can also have a family member do the exchanges for you or a friend. You may have to get that worked into your custody agreement, but those are just some ideas to help around that. That's really helpful. You know, I think it's, it's just so important, as you were mentioning, creating this boundary of no contact so you can stop re-traumatizing yourself because every contact is like a traumatization with these people. And setting that boundary of no contact is really like step zero. Like it's, it's not even the first step. It's like step zero to protect your peace so that you can move forward. Absolutely. And I've written about that, you know, no, going no contact is extremely difficult, but that is just the first step. And I don't think if people really prepare themselves for that, and you're right, going no contact and releasing a narcissistic person from your life is hard. And as you said, um, I have worked with addiction specialists who said that people who are trying to leave abusive relationships, such as ones with narcissists, are more difficult to treat than people trying to quit drugs or alcohol. Yeah. I hear two mistakes a lot that people make around the concept of no contact. I think one is not instating the no contact entirely when they can, when there aren't children involved or a situation like that. They leave the contact open. And as you wrote in your book, no contact is not no response. You know, it's, it's not leaving it open for them to contact you. That's one mistake that I see a lot. And the other one is the assumption that no contact means healing. You know, whereas as we're talking about no contact has to happen first before the healing actually takes place. I'm so glad you brought that up because that is absolutely true. Just removing yourself from a toxic environment. I mean, that's a wonderful start. But as you said, it's not going to heal you because you have been traumatized. You know, I write about this a lot. I've got so many articles on my blog about this. 
it is an emotional injury. People do develop PTSD and complex PTSD. So it needs to be treated as seriously as any other kind of trauma, if not more so. So, you know, what I tell people is, you know, going out there and joining every single forum you can find for narcissistic abuse survivors, um, that's okay in the beginning because it helps you feel validated. It helps you see that there are so many other people going through the same thing. But after a while, when you are serious about moving forward and healing, you actually want to get away from most of those groups because, and, and I've had people leave comments on my Facebook page about this because I do advocate this for this so strongly. A lot of these groups are really not helping. And that is not a form of trauma therapy because you're just, you know, re-abusing yourself by talking about it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Part of trauma recovery is talking about it, but eventually you want to do that with a specialist um, or you want to join a program that's going to help you overcome the trauma. And, and there are so many different methods that you can use. You know, trauma therapy is one. If you don't have a lot of uh, success with that. You can try things like um, EFT or tapping. There are some other um, methods you can use, um, alternative methods. But yeah, those groups are not going to help you move forward in the end, most of them anyway. So that is not to be considered a form of therapy. I agree. You know, at the beginning, it's so validating to be able to share your story, to read other stories, to get comments back with people confirming, you know, yeah, you're right. That is a manipulator. You were being abused. I think that's so important in that first step. And just like you said, like you don't want to stay there too long. Like that's a step in the process. But if you hang in there, it's like you're constantly going to be staying in that paradigm of the victimhood. Right. And so one one thing I like to recommend is that people do view this as um, rehabilitation. So, you know, just like the, the alcoholic might relapse and take a drink, you have to look at that as, you know, as a very serious back step. So when you're joining these groups, you know, when you're in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, they don't tell you, oh, it's okay. You know, you can just start over again tomorrow. I mean, they might do that in the beginning, but eventually there's going to be some kind of serious intervention. And I see in a lot of the groups, well, it's okay, you know, and they start talking about, well, it takes this many times. And it's true, it does take, you know, several times for most people to finally go no contact in its true form. But when you have thousands and thousands of people telling you, oh, it's okay, it's actually going to harm your recovery. So at that point, that's when you need to start thinking about what can I do? Because, you know, the people are trying to be supportive, but in the end, it's only going to do harm. That, that key phrase that you just said, what can I do? That's the key. That's the empowerment, the upliftment from that victim stage into the survivor stage where we realize, okay, there's something I can do about this now. Absolutely. And that's how we want to eventually look at ourselves, that we do have the power to change our circumstances. I mean, I, I know that there are some people that can't leave right away and that's okay. I couldn't either. Right. Um, but I did start an escape plan and I saved up money for a down payment on an apartment. And when he was subjected me to one of his silent treatments, I mean, over the course of a long weekend, I moved out. So when he came back, there was nothing there but crickets. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I never let him into my new apartment. 
And so I think, you know, when we start looking at recovery, we really need to take this very seriously. And I know it's hard to do because of the trauma bonding. It's that hope that, oh, maybe things can finally change, but you've got to put an expiration date on that. Exactly. I think most of us stayed well past that expiration date. It's like we, it's almost like we have to wait for that frying pan to the head lesson. Oh yeah. It's just so bad that we end it. Something else you wrote in your book, which I've heard over and over again, are how people think things are going to be different this time, you know, and, and that's how we get sucked back into these kinds of relationships or how we get tricked into breaking the no contact. Can you talk on that a little bit, that hope that things will be different this time? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, that hope is actually a symptom of trauma bonding when you know that or you know your mind might tell you oh things are going to finally be different this time that's when you have to get serious about paying attention to actions and not words and if you have a relationship where the general climate is like tsunamis and hurricanes yeah you might have one or two good days here and there but if you're running away from earthquakes all the time that's a a toxic relationship. And, you know, you don't hang around for the next tsunami, right? You evacuate. So, um, yeah, that, and that actually, uh, Meredith, I talk about that in my workshop that I have uh, for people who sign up for my newsletter. I have a workshop that talks about how trauma bonds form and seven steps you can take to, you know, get back down to reality-based thinking. What is it that makes you believe it's really going to be different this time? So you have to really measure the person's actions just because they say that they're going to change. That doesn't mean they will. So you have to observe. You don't automatically move back in. You don't automatically get re-engaged. You don't automatically set a wedding date. You have to, you know, be smart about it and observe the person's behaviors. And every single time you're going to find out that they were not serious about making change. I agree a hundred percent, you know, and that's, that's that benefit with what you said is, is giving them that time, you know, allowing their actions to reveal themselves, especially if this is like a second time or a third time back, allowing them to reveal themselves. It's going to happen so much quicker. It's like an expedited version of the relationship. That stuff just comes out so much faster. And then you realize this is not okay. Absolutely. Can you talk about too, what is not no contact? So we're talking about what is no contact. And I think, you know, that was a great part in your book, how you're addressing all of these things that we do where we're rationalizing or trying to tell ourselves that we're no contact, but we're actually still in contact in indirect ways. Right. So no contact, I I think probably the most important uh, way, what no, of, you know, example of what no contact is not, it is not a statement or a tool for revenge. So it's a decision to sever the relationship. No contact is not a method of making the narcissist pay or making them realize finally what they're throwing away. It's, as I said in the beginning, it's a way of sealing a toxic person out of your life so you can finally move forward and heal. You know, no contact is not leaving them on your friends list or on your social network so you can post pictures and make them see what they're missing. Um, In fact, you know, visiting their social media or, or allowing them continued access to your accounts is breaking no contact. Um, And it's not just ignoring them for a few days to see what they're going to do. So when you decide to go no contact, it's a 
it's a final decision. And yeah, you might backslide a time or two, but you got to realize this is a matter of survival. And I, you know, I made that mistake, but I got to get back on track. Yeah. I love how you describe that. It's a decision, a final decision to sever the relationship. And I think sometimes some people get confused and they think, well, isn't this just the silent treatment that the narcissist does, but it's not the same thing. The silent treatment is a punishment and it's meant to actually suck you back in. Whereas no contact is that final decision. Right. And a lot of people who are, you know, who identify as being empathic or highly sensitive or just extremely trauma bonded feel that way. I certainly did. I asked myself the same question. Isn't this the same as the silent treatment? Aren't I just being especially cruel? And when we are thinking that way, we're assuming that the narcissist thinks and feels the same way we do. And they do not. They don't have that empathic ability to sit there and think, well, this is hurting my partner or my, or my spouse or my friend or whomever it is. And as you said, the silent treatment is a form of punishment and usually the foundation for triangulation, whereas no contact is simply saying, I've had enough and I'm ready to make change. I'm ready to take the action to get myself out of this situation. Exactly. I think part of this too is what I call purging the paraphernalia. You know, it's like having a drug habit. So that means getting rid of the photos, the love letters, the sweatshirts, like anything left behind because anything like that, maybe sometimes people will be tempted to look at photos and then the nostalgia kicks in and before they even know it, unconsciously, they're already reaching out to the abuser or they just start to feel like so lonely or so sad. And then suddenly the abuser contacts them again and they're right back in it. Right. And this is exactly why going no contact is so important because you don't want to go back into the abuse cycle during a moment of weakness. You know, it's, it's just like if you're trying to quit drinking, you don't keep bottles of vodka in your house. You don't exactly. go to bars with friends. So I'm so glad you said it that way. Um, it's really, it's really a good comparison. And you mentioned the narcissist things. Now, if it's stuff the narcissist gave you, jewelry, or as you said, pictures or gifts, whatever, get rid of those things, sell them, donate them to the Goodwill or a local charity. Um, But another thing I've seen, I see all the time is the narcissist stuff is still at my place and I can't really break up or do anything until they come get their stuff. All right, so there are a couple of really simple things you can do in that case. You can box all their stuff up and put it on their front porch or have a friend do that for you. Or if it's bigger things like furniture and whatnot, here's what you do. You take all that stuff, you write down an inventory, have it notarized or whatever. There are um, services in some locations that will help you keep a list of what you're what you're getting rid of and you put it into storage, you pay for the first month, you give them the key and that's it. That's fantastic. That's great advice (laughs) because if they don't pay it after the first month, it's no longer your responsibility and they'll lose their stuff. So at that point it's up to them to get it. Right. It's a great solution. What else would you like to recommend to people who are co-parenting when they're managing no contact in a way that what you would call modified contact, where they're having the most very, very basic contact? What kind of advice would you have for them? Okay, so I came up with a different version of a modified contact because when you think about 
modified contact and co-parenting. In a normal divorce or breakup situation, you might have the occasional conversation with your ex or you guys might, you know, have friendly exchanges and whatnot, but not with a narcissist. So I came up with the term extreme modified contact because you can't keep assuming that the narcissist is going to do the right thing. Or come through on their word. So you have to use extreme modified contact. And what that looks like in most cases is, I'll just use myself as an example. My ex to this day does not contact me on my cell phone at all. So in the beginning, he couldn't even contact me by email. I did not give him any of my information. He could only contact me on my house phone. And just for the record, I didn't have the house phone to begin with. It's something I um, had installed in my apartment at that time just specifically for him to contact me regarding our son. So, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. And I was too. But honestly, it opened up space for so much peace. I didn't have to, you know, I wasn't at the mercy of my ex where they just, you know, they use the cell phone to continue to abuse you. Yep. And so if you can, don't give them access to your cell phone like I have done. Do not, you know, if you're going to court to, you know, arrange your custody agreement, don't allow them to have last minute schedule changes. Don't put it into the order that they can call you or contact you anytime they want. You want to sit down and write very specific things into your custody agreement. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for, you know, continued drama and abuse. Um, And I know, and I realize it's not always easy um, for everyone to do. And you might have to fight for it a little bit. But if you can get those things in place, it's really going to help tremendously. So you can get written into the custody agreement things like he or she can only contact me on this landline. Is that what you're talking about? Right. And even go so far as to say, you know, say you guys alternate every other week. Maybe your child isn't in school or maybe you live in the same district. All right. So you want to put into the agreement. Okay. So he or she can call my house on these days at this time. Mm, Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, It's a little bit harder if you've already agreed to a bunch of stuff that isn't in your favor. You can try to go back and have the, um, the order modified. But if you're just, you know, considering all of this, just keep those things in mind because you really want to be extremely specific about, about the co-parenting arrangement. This is something I haven't really heard before. And I'm wondering if maybe a lot of attorneys don't don't even offer this to people? Like, are people aware that that they have the right to put this into custody agreements? I don't think a lot of people are. And honestly, I don't think attorneys are educated enough. Now, there are some out there who specialize in high conflict divorces um, and and co-parenting arrangements, but they're so hard to find and the courts are not even up to speed. So, you know, a lot of times you end up having to get a guardian ad litem And just tell them, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to go into the court accusing this person of being a narcissist because you're just going to make yourself look unstable. 
the courts don't care about your personal feelings, even though they could be that, you know, valid. Um, you can't go in there, hey, they, they, you know, met all the criteria on this checklist and blah, blah, blah. You have to have documentation and you have to have very specific requests and, and reasons why you're requesting those things. And, you know, it's okay if you get a little bit emotional in front of your attorney, but you don't want to do that in front of the judge when you go to court. So those are just things to keep in mind because when you go into the courtroom and you're being all emotional, they may take that as a sign that you may not be a fit parent. Mm, wow. That's great advice. Wonderful advice. So get things written in the custody agreement from the beginning. If it hasn't already been done, there's maybe a possibility they could modify it if it has been done. And then to maintain that neutrality of emotion in the courts. Right. That's got to be really challenging when you're dealing with someone who's just trying so hard to provoke you. It is. I, I cannot tell you how, how much work I had to do to prepare myself for that first hearing. I mean, you know, and I couldn't go on medication because I was afraid it would, it would mess me up in the courtroom. Right. I was afraid I wouldn't be able to talk or think clearly. So I had to go in there. No medication, no real emotional support at that time. However, here is something else that I did that probably set the course for the amount of success I have experienced so far. I went to my local domestic violence center and I told them what was happening. And the girl immediately said, yeah, this person is an emotional abuser. She didn't say narcissist, but she knew what I was talking about. And a lot of people are already aware that there is actually a power uh, and abuse wheel that they made as an upgrade to the abuse wheel. And you can find these in most domestic violence centers or even online. And so she pulled out that power and abuse wheel and showed it to me. And my ex met all the criteria. So she knew exactly what I was dealing with. So they gave me a case manager. She told me exactly what to do and how to prepare myself. And that first hearing, Meredith, I did not have an attorney. I could not afford one at that time. And I actually won my restraining order pro se against my ex and his attorney. That is how well she prepared me for my case. Now, she couldn't represent me, but she helped me prepare well enough that I was able to win pro se. That is fantastic. So you would advise people to check out domestic violence shelters and check into a case manager to see if someone can help them like that if they don't have the resources for an attorney? Um, And even if you do have an attorney, you can still try to get that going beforehand. Now, not all localities are going to be as helpful. I think some of the bigger states, like maybe California, I I don't remember exactly right now, but there are some states that insist that you have to have physical abuse going on in order to get any help at all. But a lot of states are getting on board now with emotional abuse. So it's definitely worth checking into. Yeah. And you want to get those paper trails going. So say, for example, you have moved into your own apartment and your ex keeps showing up. You have to be strong and say, look, I've asked you not to come here. And if you do it again, I'm going to have to call the police. And then when it happens, you have to call the police because you have to get that documentation built up so that you will be credible when your case goes to court. That's great advice. I imagine this has got to be 
a lot more challenging for men who are dealing with an abusive woman. Like they can't go to these domestic violence shelters for the most part. That's mostly only set up for women. Um, what would be your advice for, for fathers who are trying to co-parent with an abusive woman? It is, I think, more difficult for men. Um, I, I have worked with male clients and some of the stories they've told me were really just horrific. Mm. Female narcissists, um, in my own experience, have oftentimes been much worse than your garden variety male narcissist. They're more cunning, mm-hmm. uh, more deceitful. They're, they're better able to hide their abuse. So, and, you know, the courts, things are changing a little bit now, but the courts used to automatically grant custody to the mother. And it's even more important in these cases to document, take pictures, record conversations. Now, you want to consult with an attorney, but there are some cases where you can record conversations like I think your vehicle is one of them. Like you don't have to let the other person know. You want to definitely consult with an attorney to get the specific state laws in your area on this. But there usually are some instances where you can secretly record someone. Um, I have had male clients, coaching clients, that is, who had gone to domestic violence centers. So, you know, it's it's definitely worth taking those first steps at least to figure out what your options are. That's great. Document, document, document. Documentation is your best friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the biggest mistakes I see is people, um, you know, they'll email me, oh my God, I have a court hearing next week. What do I do? Well, do you have any documentation? What have you, you know, what do you have built up so far? Nothing. That's the worst thing you can do for yourself is not document. So there's got to be a little bit of a challenge too with maintaining all those documents and keeping yourself from, let's say, indulging in that and obsessing about that and looking at that all the time. It's so, you know, getting rid of the paraphernalia is one thing. If you don't have children, if you have children, you may need to save emails, text messages, phone conversations, all this stuff that we need to document. How do you recommend that people store that stuff so that there's that kind of healthy boundary that still protects them from indulging and thinking in that too much? That's a good question. In my case, I I was able to compartmentalize. So I knew that, okay, I'm keeping this documentation in this binder and I would only get it out if I needed to add something or I needed to um, get the facts straight in my mind, like before talking to my attorney or submitting information to my attorney. So it was something that I was able to keep myself from ruminating over. Um, so, you know, if you can just try to distract yourself, just like, a you know, someone trying to overcome drugs or alcohol, just realize, okay, I, I can't indulge in this right now unless I'm doing it for a reason. The reason is that you need to get your facts in order. You need to get stuff together for your attorney. That's okay. But if you're just doing it because you want to ruminate and you want to go back and look over the stuff, just realize that it is the same as a drug addict 
taking a sniff of cocaine, you are re-abusing and re-traumatizing yourself. And that's a common thing, by the way, and nothing to feel ashamed of for having those urges because it has been scientifically proven that we do develop biological addictions to these um, traumatic relationships. So you're going to have the urge or at least a lot of people will, um, but just realize, okay, ask yourself before you go back, am I doing this for a specific purpose that's going to help me? That's great advice. So compartmentalize it, keep it in a certain folder in a certain place, and then set a specific time to go in for a specific purpose. Like you said, organizing things, refreshing your memory, preparing for a court date, but keep that all very structured so that you don't slip back into that addiction of wanting to ruminate on it. Absolutely. And one thing I I do want to mention for anyone who is in the situation, who's going through a divorce and who is preparing for a court hearing, I have received really heartbreaking emails from mostly women, but I guess this happens to men too. So the court hearing is set, you guys have your attorneys and suddenly the narcissist shows up at your place or maybe your place of employment and seems really remorseful and they they want to make it work after all. They don't want to lose their family. And so I've seen people cave into this and maybe they withdraw their legal papers that they had filed with their attorney. Um, I've seen this happen and they go into court thinking, okay, we've made this agreement together. We're going to try to work things out. And then the narcissist gets custody. Mm. So do not under any circumstances believe the narcissistic individual, especially in cases of divorce and custody. Do not believe what they say. You know, a lot of them, let's say, for example, you don't have kids and you're just getting a divorce. Of course, they're going to say they don't want a divorce. They don't want to divide their assets. They don't want to pay you alimony. That's the only thing they're really thinking about when they come back and say, I want to make this work. Please forgive me. Let's try again. That is fantastic advice because it's always at that last minute at the 11th hour that they show up with that. (laughs) Yes, it is. Right. And they're preying on that that hope. They're trying to stoke any little bit of hope left that you have in your heart. Yes, they are. Kim, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of this really valuable information. And remember, you guys, check out this book, Doing No Contact, How to Do No Contact Like a Boss. It's going to help you so much to put this into place and to keep those boundaries strong so you can protect your peace. Thank you, Meredith. This was a lot of fun, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Me too. Thank you. You can find Kim Saeed at LetMeReach.com. What do you do if you break no contact? People ask me this a lot. They just, they have a slip somehow. Some kind of message gets through or they reach out or they go take a look at this person's like social media page and then they go right back into the fall. And so what happens when you break no contact? The short and simple answer is you get back up, baby. You get back up. And, you know, recovery is not about not making a mistake and not falling. It's about how quickly do you get back in the game once you've fallen? Like, how quickly do you get back up once you've been down? And, you know, the no contact thing, that's about the boundary. And, you know, no contact really is like the epicenter 
of your power in the situation because it's the only way that you take your power back from the abuser by not being in contact with them at all, by not giving them that. What, what is contact? You know, not only is it like text and phone and email and social media and direct communication with the person, but it's also like looking at photos and looking at old emails or old letters or their sweatshirts or their jewelry or any of this stuff, you know, which really is considered like paraphernalia of an addiction because that addiction is the abusive relationship with that person. And, and the reality is that if you keep that stuff around, if you keep the paraphernalia around, you are very likely to slip back into that place, into that Stockholm syndrome, into the trauma bond. And so the, the best way to do that is to set that barrier, to set that boundary and just keep that stuff away from you, not ever to go look at that, not even to like go look at their photo on social media, because even just seeing a glance at a photo is capable of setting you so far back. The only equivalent that I could make to this is like the drunk who maybe goes a period of time without drinking and then they decide they're just going to go out and have a drink with a buddy or something and it goes from like zero to blackout in no time like they don't even know what happened between zero and blackout they had one drink and they were in too deep and that's what happens with abuse is if you have any contact with this person you can go from zero to that in like no time and zero to the Stockholm syndrome and you're in so deep again and you're in the denial again and you're self-doubting again you know and understand that any contact with that abusive person even you know reading old emails and love letters or sniffing their sweatshirt or something like that anything like that is capable of sending you back to the beginning of your recovery like to zero point and starting again it's capable of distorting the truth because all you need to hear is that one thing again that they plant in your mind that one doubt and then everything gets distorted and you get confused again and then you're self-doubting yourself again and you're thinking well if I just give a little more if I just love a little more if I just do more of what they want then everything's going to be okay and that's just really really dangerous for your sanity, for your health, and for your well-being. So what happens when you break no contact? Don't beat yourself up about it. It's okay. The average is seven times, right, that people go back to an abusive relationship, to an abusive person. So if you got out in two or three times, like, you're doing really good. Don't beat yourself up for those times that you went back because for whatever reason, if you went back, there was something still unresolved. You were still trying to understand something really, really important to really accept the fact that you're never going to get the conclusion. You're never going to get the closure with them that you would in a normal relationship. And you really just have to give that to yourself. You know, any going back to try to get that closure is just going to distort the truth and it's capable of sucking you back in before you even know it. And then you're back in another abusive cycle. And so you don't, you don't want to keep staying stuck in that cycle and like the wash and rinse and spin cycle. So when, when you catch yourself and you realize that you went back for another lesson, you went back and sometimes we go back for those frying pan lessons to the head you really need to get hit hard in the head with the truth not literally but like just seeing the truth so clearly that you just finally decide that you've had enough and when you get to that moment when you've had enough then you've had enough and you stop it and you move on and so don't beat yourself up for going back but just get back up get back up stand back up and put the boundary out there that boundary is step one it's actually like step zero it happens before major healing can happen you have to have that boundary because until you have the boundary, your energy is just leaking out here and there and somebody else, if not that person, somebody else is sucking up your energy and you just don't have access to your energy. You feel exhausted and tired and confused and you're in the brain fog. So how do you get out of that is you set the boundary. You set the healthy boundary to protect yourself. With the boundary, it tells you like where I end and where you begin. This is all mine and here, this is what I own 100% of and what's out there I don't own and I don't accept responsibility for. And I protect my values, right? You wanna protect your values, what's important to you, the things that are most important to you in your life. That's what the boundary serves to protect. Keep in mind that 
a boundary could be something as simple as sharing or oversharing. Like what is safe to share with certain people versus what is better to be kept closer to you and only shared with people that you really intimately trust and you know who, who are trustworthy and who truly love you and won't use that to, to their advantage. So if you fall, it's okay. Get back up, put the new boundary there and go in with the resolution of what you learn. Look back at that mistake and turn it into a lesson. Realize that you learned something new. You must have learned something new. What was it? And then put that into place and move forward. One of my Facebook friends, his name is Arthur Fields, posted this beautiful post the other day about how to stop playing the abuser's game. And so I wanted to share this with you. He gave me permission to do that because I think he's really hitting on some key points that maybe a lot of people just don't realize it does not mean that you're no contact. Sometimes we think contact is just like if we're actually in communication or we see each other or we respond to something. So he lined up a few things that I want to read to you. He wrote, I assume my part in the whole game. All those public posts I made on Facebook directed towards him. All those indirect quotes and stuff that were meant to reach out while I was no contact. Turns out it wasn't no contact. It was just a break. Going no contact means disengaging completely from the toxic dynamic. I have come to learn a lot about what no contact is not. No contact is not blocking him everywhere, yet making public posts on your social media which would serve as a bait to the abuser. No contact is not pretending you don't want to speak to him, yet you walk past the spots where he is hanging out. No contact is not not speaking to your abuser, yet you keep being friends with his friends. No contact is not stalking him or the next source of supply. And then at the very end, he adds this brilliant little piece. All of those things are nothing but self-sabotage. We pretend we are no contact when in fact we still need our abuser to go back to us. So I thought that was really keen. And I wanted to share that with you guys because sometimes we don't think about these things, right? Like maybe it's like a subconscious thing. We don't even want to consciously admit it. If you're walking past the place where that abusive person worked or hung out and in you're telling yourself that you don't want to see them, but you're walking and making yourself available, you know, in the areas where you know there's a good chance you could run into them. You go to the bar where you always know they hung out. Pretty soon, you're probably going to run into them and you're probably going to get hooked back in it. Or even like posting things, you wrote, serving as bait you know, to get the abusive person to see it or to get someone that they know to see it and tell them and then blah, blah, blah. And, and that sort of behavior. So yeah, that will get you in trouble. And then staying friends with people that they're friends with because the smear campaign is really dangerous what could happen after you get away from that abusive person and if your friends are still friends with that abusive person and you told them the truth and they're still friends with them those aren't really your friends your friends will stand up they will unfriend that person on facebook like maybe they barely know them but they connected on facebook or their social media they will unfriend them your actual friends, but people who aren't actually your friends and they're more, you know, involved in their own self-interest and whatnot, they're still going to maintain contact with them. Worse yet, they could become flying monkeys for that abusive person and they can start passing information back and forth. And just on top of that, like every time you hang out with those people, either they're going to talk about that abusive person or something is going to remind you of it. And that's not healthy. It's not going to help you to move forward because it's still going to keep you in the loop. So if you're if you're in a situation where you feel like you still have really low energy, you're still in the confusion and the fog and you're still like really, really craving for that person, really take a look at... Are you really out of that toxic dynamic or are you fooling yourself? Are you still in there somehow? 
Are you still in the contact somehow, even though you're fooling yourself into thinking that you're not actually in contact just because you're not actually directly in contact? All of these things, you know, that Arthur lined up, these are all indirect ways that you're still in contact with that abusive person. So the best thing to do is just to get all of that out of your life. Stop going to the areas where you know you could run into them. Stop going anywhere near the place where they work or places that they hang out. Find new places to go explore. Don't don't hang on to that just because you always went there together or you really like the food at that place, but you know they're going to go there. Don't go there because you're still going to be in that trauma bond. And even just the anticipation, the anxiety of possibly running into them could drive you crazy. And then worse yet, if you actually see them and how that can affect you in the moment, that anxiety, that panic going into the stress response, you know, then you're back in that whole dynamic, the amygdala hijack, you're not going to get better if you keep doing this, especially in that early stage of separation, like the first year or two, like you really need to go no contact if you want to totally heal from that person and move on. And again, I realize this does not apply to situations where people share a child with a narcissist, like quite likely you will have to be in minimum contact with very healthy clear, solid, strong boundaries for the rest of your life because you share that child or at least until that child is 18. But quite likely beyond that, there will just be things that come up that you'll have to talk about. So that that doesn't apply to that situation. But if you don't have a child with that person, it's just someone that you dated or it was someone from work or it was a friend or a neighbor or something like that, that's the case to go no contact. That's the best case scenario. And no contact truly is the epicenter of your taking your power back so you could move forward. Don't underestimate the power of no contact. That is your power over that person. If you respond to that person in any way, shape, or form, or you even do these other activities that he lined up, you're still in it. You're still going to feel powerless. You're still going to feel out of control. You're still going to feel confused. You're still going to feel crushing self-doubt, crushed sense of self-worth and self-esteem and self-respect because deep down you know at some level that you're compromising yourself, that you have this urge to want to see them or to maybe want them to reach out to you so that you could reject them or something like this. Stop looking for that. Because when you're craving that and looking for that, it's going to show up somehow, somehow, even if it's just like internally and inside of you. But quite likely, if you're projecting that energy enough, that person's going to tune into that and they're going to try to get in contact with you or they're going to try to seek you out or they're going to be doing something behind the scenes that you're not even aware of and somehow that's affecting you. So really take that to heart. If you catch yourself doing any of those things that he lined up, recognize you're not no contact at that point. You're just fooling yourself. And you know, I'm not saying that to be hard on you. I'm saying that to be real with you because I fooled myself doing that before, you know? And so, so just really being honest with yourself and really admitting if you're still looking for that person to get in contact with you, or you're still hoping that they'll reach out, you're still in that dynamic. You're still in that toxic dynamic. Your energy is leaking out. Your life force energy is being leaked out. And that toxicity is still coming in. So you're not getting better. You're still on that gerbil wheel. You're still exhausted because you're spending a lot of energy, but you're not getting anywhere and you're not moving forward. Really, really, really hard to try to move forward when there's still any kind of connection to that toxic, abusive cycle and dynamic. That post I referenced came from the blog Abuse Free Warriors on WordPress by Arthur Fields, my brother from another mother. He's also the translator of my book, The Journey into Spanish. 
So how does it work when you have children in joint custody with the abuser? So in this case, when you have children, as you said, you can't be no contact entirely. No contact is ideal. No contact works for people who don't have children, for people who are not working in an area where their boss or their coworker is a narcissist, they can't leave immediately. Somebody who is a neighbor who's a narcissist, they can't move immediately, right? In one of these situations where you're, you're stuck for now or for a period of time, when you're co-parenting with one of these abusive types, it is gonna be a lifetime of these lessons, like a lifetime of boundary lessons. So since you can't be entirely no contact, you wanna use what's called gray rock technique. And you can find a lot of information about this online. But gray rock technique is essentially about being boring, uninteresting, unopinionated. Essentially, you don't want to look like some kind of shiny, bright object full of drama that the other person can come in and start manipulating, right? You want to just appear that your life is boring, there's nothing interesting going on here, nothing to see. When you talk to this person, you don't have strong opinions about things because you know how it is. You have this opinion, they take the opposite. You have this opinion, they take the opposite. They have no real opinion on things. They just wanna take the opposite of your opinion so they can get you into this twisting, exhausting, mental spin of, of an argument. In the case where you are parenting with this person, the gray rock communication means you don't talk about anything but the kids. When you're picking up, where you're picking up, the event he has at school, the, the sports event she is going on, like whatever the things are about the kids and anything to do with the kids that you have to talk to this person about as co-parents and according to your custody agreement, according to the family court's agreements, anything having to do with the kids, you don't owe this person anything more than that. You have to talk about the kids because you have a legal agreement. You have to honor those agreements, but you don't have to talk about your personal life. I would never, ever, ever share anything about your personal life ever again with that person, ever. Sharing is a boundary. It's an important boundary because if you give that person information, they can and will use that information against you. Anything you say. If you share your happiness, what are they gonna do? they're gonna try to make you feel like shit. If you share that you're feeling sad or down or upset, what are they gonna do? Kick you when you're down, right? They know how to do that. They love doing it. They're master manipulators at that. Do not reveal any personal information, who you're dating, what your work life is, what your friend's life is, nothing. If you mention that you're gonna be unavailable, don't tell them what you're doing. Don't tell them you're going out with your friends or a new date or whatever. Just, I have plans, I'm busy. That's it. You don't say anything more. You don't owe them anything more. All you owe them is that custody agreement and the agreement that you have with your kids to honor that, to let them have the kids when they're supposed to have the kids according to the court documents, to have whatever communication you need to have around the finances for the kids and the events for the kids and this and that, and that is it. Nothing more. Do not allow this person into your home again. Okay, I don't know what your agreement is on how you exchange the kids, but I would probably set up some kind of agreement where you make the boundary of your home your sacred space. I would never ever allow them into your home. Maybe that means not even allowing them on the steps outside your home, that you'll exchange the kids you know, out in the front yard, at the driveway, at the cars, in a public place. However you wanna work out that agreement, do not allow that person into your home ever again, even if that was a home that you shared together. Don't ever walk into their 
home again. That's their private space. Let them have their private space and then honor and protect your private space. Have no other communication with that person other than the kids nothing else. I would keep things in writing. A lot of parents talk about this, you know, and again, I'm not a parent. I never had to deal with this. This is how I would handle the situation if I were in your situation. This is what I read from a lot of other people who were parents and recommending, you know, strategies that worked not to have any other communication, to keep it in writing. You know, they talk about, I think a lot of custody agreements and you'll need to check with your state and your legal representative. A lot of them say like there has to be one channel of communication, whether it's like an email or a phone or something like that. Just there has to be at least one channel of communication. So if it's possible, keep the communication written, text or email. That way it's in writing. If there's ever any issues, you have a paper trail, you can take that to your legal representative that can be taken to family court. Everything that they're saying on the phone, you may not be able to prove unless you have some kind of call recorder. You need to find out if your state is one of the states that is a one party, um, what's the terminology? One party consent or both party consent, something like this. Meaning one party consent means only one of the two people being recorded knows that they're being recorded. That means you know you're recording the conversation because you have a software on your phone that anytime the phone rings, it's automatically recording the phone conversation and that person doesn't necessarily need to know if your state is one of those one party consent or however that uh, the terminology goes. Apparently there are some states where both parties have to give consent in order for that to be used in a court of law. If that's the case, it's not gonna work for you if he doesn't know that he's being recorded on that phone call. So I would investigate that in your state. I would talk to your attorney about that um, and find out from you know your legal representative and then figure out which way of communication is gonna work best for you and set it up that way. And then don't address anything that that person says that has anything other than to do with your kids. Even if they throw in some zingers and some digs at you, don't get caught in the self-defense. It's gonna be really hard. You're gonna to wanna to go defend yourself and that's only gonna open you to an attack. It's only gonna open you to them twisting your thing up and attacking you and making you feel like crap and making you doubt yourself. Don't give them the opportunity. Just completely dismiss it and only address the communications with the kids. There's a woman named Kim Saeed. I recommend checking out her website, letmereach.com. She wrote a book called How to Do No Contact Like a Boss. She brings this up because she's a mother, she has kids, and she shared custody with a narcissist or some other cluster B type. She gets it, she knows what it is, she has some awesome tips on this. I would check that out as well. She mentioned something about having like a monitored email. She and this guy, you know, the father, we're only communicating, I think, through this certain email address about whatever custody issues with the kids. And either she was having, I think she was having a friend or a professional, someone else first read the email, right? Before she even had to look at it, they would read the email and they would decide if there was anything in there that was valid that had to do with the kids at all, or if it was just a bunch of his attempts to try to manipulate her and twist her and cause her to start defending herself and getting involved in these conversations and blah, blah, blah. 
right? So they would screen the emails first for anything that was pertinent relating to the kids and everything else that wasn't, they just got rid of or they put in some file that she never even had to look at. So she didn't have to get triggered every time he tried to like poke at her and create some kind of response from her. So you might consider something like that. Check out her book, check out her website. She's like you, she's a mama. She had to deal with this kind of situation. And then I would look up the gray rock techniques. You can learn more about that too. Be boring, uninteresting, unopinionated, and only talking about the kids in this situation. You know, like they say, well, until the kid's 18, right? But it doesn't stop there really because then there's college maybe or weddings or whatever and there's going to be financial stuff and there's going to be like well what happens when an event happens do both parents go does one parent go and not the other parent and how are you going to deal with that and it's really going to be a lifetime like that with this person so understand that for whatever reason you have signed up for a lifetime lesson in boundaries and that's where your major work is going to be right now is learning boundaries is setting healthy boundaries for yourself setting them without guilt not feeling shame about having those boundaries and not allowing him to manipulate you and impose or violate those boundaries and in and, and figuring out what works best and how to deal with him the best and what are what are techniques that you find that work the best just to keep him away and you'll see how things go and recognize that when you set new boundaries the immediate reaction is going to be he's upset and he's going to try to impose his will and violate your boundaries or guilt trip and shame you into thinking that you have no right to have those boundaries or make you feel small or whatever resist the temptation to get into any argument about that completely resist it and if you feel like you're just like dying to defend yourself about whatever it was he said go journal about that instead or go call your best friend or your sister or whoever and tell them about that instead of engaging with him don't give him that because you're just going to give him ammunition and if he finds that he can't get it from you he's going to have to go somewhere else for that drama he's always going to be trying to get it from you because there's always going to be this connection with the kids but you're going to get better and better at those boundaries because every time you set and enforce that boundary you get stronger your self-worth and your self-respect goes up you get more confident it starts to become so much easier to set boundaries than it was before and recognize that boundaries is a lesson that we learn because someone crossed the limit you know we, we often don't know when and how to set a boundary until someone crosses a limit that we didn't know we had so boundary lessons are learned that way they're learned the hard way and don't beat yourself up if you learn more and more of these boundary lessons along the way because you probably will so look at it as an opportunity to learn something and then figure out what you can learn from that experience so that you don't repeat that same mistake next time because then it becomes a learning experience and not a mistake and, and like I said boundary lessons are like that like we make mistakes right we didn't we didn't realize there was a boundary there or we didn't realize that we weren't upholding the boundary or we let the person shame us or guilt trip us or otherwise impose or manipulate us to change the boundary and then we felt awful because of course the person hurt you so keep practicing your boundary lessons I would study that kind of stuff primarily how to set boundaries how to do the, the great rock technique check out kim saeed's book how to do no contact like a boss and be a boss of your boundaries and remember that there's a bigger picture here right it's not just about you it's about your kids too and when they see you setting healthy boundaries as an example you're setting a healthy example for them you're leading by example for your kids because they're gonna have a lot to overcome maybe you were raised by a narcissistic parent maybe this is a pattern that's been with you for a lifetime now you're realizing what it is and you're 
you're starting to heal yourself and then you as you heal yourself you offer the opportunity to your children to heal themselves because they were exposed to those same patterns you know with their parent who who is a narcissist or a sociopath or a borderline or whatever cluster b personality they have and they're going to have some healing work to do too but recognize that you can be an example you can lead by example you can be that person in their life that helps them heal from that you can make up for not protecting them or not standing up for them and yourself until this point it's not too late and and it's almost like you have to put your oxygen mask on first right even when you're on the plane when those oxygen masks come down they tell you you put it on you first and then the kids right because if you pass out trying to put that mask on the kid you're not there right? You're not going to be there to protect them, to take care of them. You got to take care of you first. And that starts with your boundaries. And then you're setting that example for your kids and you're protecting your kids in that process. And as you're healing yourself, you're giving your kids permission to see that within themselves, to recognize those same patterns. You're giving yourself that ability to see what's going on with them. And you know, if you're seeing that your kids are really struggling with this, I wouldn't hesitate to get them into therapy. Find a therapist who gets it, a therapist who understands these dynamics of narcissistic abuse, emotional abuse, of PTSD caused by abusive relationships, someone who specializes in that so that they can get help so they don't have to carry these patterns with them long into adulthood like you and I did, right? Because the younger they are, the sooner they get help, the better. That way they don't have to live like that the rest of their lives. Would you please offer any insight on how to free myself from the desire to connect with him? So good job recognizing that Facebook was a tough point for you. So you, you deleted your Facebook because that just took that whole temptation away. And that's, that's great. That's you setting a boundary, a new limit with yourself, you know, because our boundaries and our limits first and foremost are with ourselves, right? They're for other people, but really they're for ourselves because we're the ones who have to manage those boundaries. You know, we're the ones who have to decide if we're going to hold on to that boundary and enforce that boundary, or if we're going to compromise the boundary and let the other person get what they want to get and take advantage of us. So that's that's a great idea that you deleted your Facebook because you didn't even want to feel that, see the light and feel the feelings that were coming with that. So it's great that you recognized the connection there and then you took that action. So what other insight to free yourself from the desire to connect with him? A lot of people talk about the abuse amnesia, right? And how sometimes afterwards we feel like we miss them because we're blocking out all the negative. We're blocking out the abuse and we're reminiscing and nostalgic of the times when it was good or back in the beginning when they had on the mask and they were love bombing and it seemed like they were a different person than they really are, that sort of thing, or, or in those moments when the person was showing you kindness. And remember that that act of kindness is also part of the Stockholm Syndrome. Like that's what makes the Stockholm Syndrome work is that the, cap, the person who's held captive, the hostage, senses or feels some little act of kindness by the person who's holding them hostage or the abuse. And that's what keeps you hooked. It's what keeps you coming back in that cycle. So you want to write down in a journal somewhere, all of the negative things you can think about. Like every time you think of like something awful that he did, write that down and maybe just spend some time every day writing in this journal to write down that abusive stuff. And that way, when you get into like that wishful thinking phase, you know, where you're like, well, maybe, or you just, you just really thinking about wanting to reach out or you're just really dreaming about who you thought he was 
was, you know, open that notebook and you're going to start to read until you get to that point where you have the reality check and you're like, wow, that's right. That's why I'm not with this person. That's why I shouldn't be with this person. This was no good for me. And you need to just keep reading that until it gets into your head. The denial is an unconscious thing. Like the conscious mind doesn't control it. So when you read it and keep getting that into the conscious mind, it's like somehow there starts to be this connection between the conscious and the subconscious. And then the subconscious eventually stops craving that. Like it, it finally gets the message like this is really bad. This is really unhealthy for me. This is very toxic behavior. I don't want to be around this person. I don't even want to think about him because I don't want to bring that energy in. Because when you think about people, like you are bringing that energy in, you're making that connection, you're reliving the experiences, your nervous system, your whole body is reliving as if he were there with you. So you're keeping yourself locked in that trauma bond in the Stockholm syndrome by doing that. That's why when you keep reading about the abuse and you keep putting that in your head and you keep remembering how bad things were, it's that reality check that your subconscious really needs so that you can let go of that. You know, and then you can finally get to that point where you bury the hope because you really, really get it and you fully accept you don't want anything to do with him. You don't even want to think about him because you want to move forward with your life and not bring the toxicity with you. Someone says, I'm noticing a difference in the kind of advice strategies that is given between a therapist and the coaches I've sought out online for help who specifically deal with narc abuse and cluster B people, coaches like yourself. All the coaches seem to suggest no contact, even when it's family, whereas my therapist has suggested to me regarding my narc mother and my sister ways to keep boundaries, but hesitantly will suggest to stay away from them. That can happen a lot, especially if the therapist doesn't understand the gravity of this kind of abuse. You know, so many people that I've worked with have told me that their therapist kept encouraging them to engage with the narcissist or the other cluster B, or therapist was blaming them for punishing their parents or whomever for cutting off the contact and just didn't get it, like didn't get the magnitude of it, clearly didn't understand what the Stockholm syndrome was because if the therapist understands truly what Stockholm syndrome is, they would understand it's very, very, very dangerous to have contact with people like that. And when you're talking about family members and whatnot, for some people, it works out to have healthy boundaries, strict, clear, healthy boundaries. That usually works out best when it's a long distance relationship with the family member and you don't have to see them very often. You don't have a lot of communication. That usually doesn't work so well when you're living near them and having like a lot of contact, like eventually just gets to that point where they just don't accept your boundaries. They don't respect the boundaries. And then the option is, well, you either compromise your boundaries and your integrity and your health and your well-being and your sanity or you end the relationship. And only you know where that line is because you know best. It's your family and it's affecting you. And so, yeah, that is, you know, I, I think that the no contact thing actually came from psychology. I don't think that that started from coaches. I think it came from psychologists who actually understand it and understand it well. That was my understanding. Maybe I'm confused on that, but could just be that, that the therapists are working with that old traditional model, the Freudian model, you know, which Dr. George Simon talks about. There was the old psychotherapy, the traditional psychotherapy, which was meant to deal with neuroses, people with neuroses, people who feel a sense of guilt about things. When you're dealing with these so-called character disturbed people, the cluster Bs, they don't have that kind of guilt about things. The, the, the traditional psychology does not apply to them. And most therapists just don't get that because they've only been trained in traditional psychology. They haven't really at all been trained with how to deal with cluster B manipulative, abusive people. They probably took one course on cluster B. And the, you know, if you've read the DSM and you've 
you've read the technical literature, it's, it's very hard to conceptualize like, what is that? How does it play out in real life? How does one deal with that? How does one in the therapeutic way deal with the victim? And they're not learning that stuff, unfortunately. And so if they haven't had that experience or they haven't sought out that research and that information, they may not really get it. And so it's good that you're educating yourself by getting lots of different points of views online. You know, there's like all kinds of information out there. So that's really good because you, once you have more information and you can decide like what's most resonating with you and what's most resonating with your particular situation, with your particular family member or your particular ex or however that worked out. I found out a little bit ago that this person will be coming to my city, uh, that this person will be near the places that I usually go. What should I do about this? What do you recommend doing in case I happen to see him? Have you had a situation like this? So yeah, all of us, right? We have these situations. Sometimes people are unfortunately still living in the city with the narcissist, the psychopath, whatever. So it's like an everyday reality for them. Sometimes it's like the people don't live there. In this case, the person is moving there. or Maybe you're going to be visiting a city or something like that. And you're worried about running into this person or you're going to some kind of like professional conference and you happen to be in the same profession and that sort of thing. And you're concerned. So what do you do? You just, you want to go no contact. Live your life and do what works for you. And this person becomes, you know, you realize this person's like a psychopath and they're stalking you, go to the police. If not, if they're, you know, just rude or catty, like they're cross room, like they're gossiping about you, you know, they're just trying to get under your skin, just leave. Just don't even hang out around people like that. And I wouldn't give this person the time of day. I, I would simply ignore their ex very existence, prove to them that they're just like a meaningless to you. And and that's if they're harmless. If they're if they're actually dangerous and they're making threats, whether they are covert and indirect threats, like they're mentioning things like guns and violence and blood, and you know they're dropping all these hints, then I would definitely go to the police about that. Those are indirect, covert, aggressive manipulation tactics. If they're not and they're just being who they are and they're just you know trying to get under your skin, but they're harmless, then I would completely ignore them. I would walk past them, not even look at them, pretend like they don't exist don't don't pay any attention if they should try to talk to you again i would just keep walking keep moving if they become annoying and they're like really 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 trying to get your attention and usually narcissists are not that interested in making a fool out of themselves because usually the most important thing to them is their public perception so usually they're not going to make a fool of themselves in public sometimes they do sometimes they just lose it particularly the borderline personality disordered individuals sometimes they have even less control over their actions, they have a severe impulse control problem. So they might do something, they could be violent, they could just be, have some sort of outburst and whatnot um, that could create some kind of scene. I would just walk away, don't engage in that, don't talk back, don't answer any questions, don't defend yourself in any sort of way. And if it gets really uncomfortable, I would just leave the environment, but don't let them make you afraid. It's also your city, you live there and you like to go to these places. If the person really starts stalking you and creating a problem, then go to the authorities. But if not, I would just ignore it. That's going to be boring to the narcissist. They're looking for something juicy. They're looking for something dramatic. They're looking for someone to provoke who will give in and respond to them. And if you don't, then you're boring to them and you're not giving them the narcissistic supply. They will go away. They will inevitably go away. They will find a new target because they're hopelessly dependent upon that supply. They, they can't survive without that supply.
I think it's like all of us, like we just underestimate the power that contact has, right? Or even looking at their Facebook page or catching a photo of them or something. I heard from someone last week and he just went and looked at her Facebook photo and she looked really nice. She was all dressed up to go out and it sent him into this downward spiral tailspin for like probably a week now. And, and it's just unbelievable. The power of that contact. I wish I didn't have to break no contact for the item I discussed with you. Yeah, it's okay though. I mean, don't hold that against yourself. Don't just stew in the regret of that. Do you know what I mean? Because you learned that frying pan lesson that I was talking about earlier that sometimes some of us just have to learn, which is the hard way. Like really, really so painful that it finally just breaks through that denial where it's just so clear that breaking the no contact is not a good idea. It's really, it's the only power that you have over them because if you don't respond or if you don't reach out, then they have no power whatsoever none whatsoever. So that's really the way to maintain your power to keep that self-control is the no contact. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you see from a new perspective so you can take new action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough. You matter and you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at www.innerintegration.com where you'll get a free three-part video course when you enter your name and email on the homepage. Get loads of more free content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.